Let's go and get started. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for how you've watched over us. I thank you, Lord, for memories that we have. I thank you for friends that we have and family. And thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers as we prayed for some around the church through the, the last week, seeing Luke today and knowing that um, we pray for them this week in that situation. And here he is reco- recovering, and we're grateful for that. We, Lord, are grateful for you watching over us as we've traveled and been places. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us as we look at Psalm 38, guide us and bless us in this, that we would be encouraged and strengthened, but also at the same time, Lord, we would know that we could come to you, a God who cares about your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be at Psalm 38. Let's see if this thing will work here. I hear she's great with technology. All right. I don't know if it's the battery or... That's not plugged in. Let's see. Nope, it must be the battery. I'll take care of that later. All right, so Psalm 38. A Psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my, because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also is gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof. From my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Yahweh, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let, the, let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Yahweh. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So that's Psalm 38. Was there anything you saw in there? Maybe some um, repeated concepts. Steve? Bones. Bones. Steve has a bone to pick with me. Yeah, yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah. Good. What else do you see? Anything else? Anything from a previous psalm that kind of popped up in your head as we were reading through it? Yeah, yeah. Once again, back to this. I'm not sure what's going on there on their part, why they're, why they're doing this. Right, very good. There's also an interesting play between some of this is his own fault. My sin, my fault, right? But then, we'll get to this in a minute, but the adversaries are after him and he has no idea why they're after him. He's already got his own trouble and now they're just adding to it, which is interesting. Okay? Anybody else? Okay. Seeing how my little clicker is not working, I'll have to do this manually. Here we go. So, I'm calling this sadness, suffering, and sin. And that's really how this is going to break down for us. So, the first part, verses 1-8, through eight, sin and suffering. Uh, 9-14, sin and sadness. And then, verses 15-22, through 22, sadness, suffering, and sin. So, let's begin. Let me just read this. This is from Trimper Longman who wrote a book years ago called How to Read the Psalms, okay? And it's a, a delightful, it's actually kind of like a Bible study book, something you could use in a group study or a Sunday school class. So he goes through the first part of the book and just gives you some overviews of the psalms and the different textures, and then you go through and practice reading some of the psalms. It's a delightful little book. And he says this, he says, The psalms teach us that our emotions are grounded in our faith, our covenant faith. This contradicts our mistaken belief that emotions are something over which we have no control. Contrary to this, notice how in the Psalms, the composer's feelings are associated with his relationship to God. When God is distant, the psalmist is sad, afraid, ashamed, doubtful, even angry. When God is near, he is happy and secure. He even expresses love. It is simply not true that our emotional life is something over which we have no control. The psalmist can help us discipline our emotions. I like that last line. The psalms can help us discipline our emotions. I remember being in high school, in more high school, they made us take a psychology class. Well, they didn't make us, but we took a psychology class. And the, psych, the professor was a defunct Episcopal priest. Actually, he never was ordained. Excuse me. He went to seminary and then bailed out and went into psychology and he had all kinds of issues. He was like on his fourth marriage by the time he was teaching his class in 1979 and all kinds of things. Egotistical, he would come in wearing all of the, his bishop's mitre and, and staff. And it was just, he was a weird guy. But he said one thing that I remember, I don't remember anything else he said, but he said one thing, he says, you actually have control over your emotions. And I always found that really, really helpful just to remember that. Yeah, I, I'm not the victim of my emotions. I have control over them. And I think that that's what really helps as you read like Trimper Longman and his point here is that the psalms the psalmist can help discipline our emotions it's not get rid of them they're fine it's that sometimes we let them rule us and run us what is it the I over the E or whatever it was yeah so the, the emotions over the intellect you know and so we have to be careful with that but we can incorporate our emotions are supposed to incorporate our emotions into our worship into prayer I think he's right. The psalmist helps us to learn to discipline our emotions. Okay? All right. That was more of an introduction for you. So let's talk about sin and suffering. So as you look at verse 1, so before you actually get to our verse 1, look at the very first part of the Hebrew verse 1, that inscription, the psalm of David for the memorial offering. 
Does anybody have a different translation for that? For a memorial? Huh? Anybody else have a different one? Okay, so like the King James, I think it says for remembrance. Actually, in the Hebrew, that's really what it is. It's for remembrance. There's only two Psalms that have that same Hebrew word. It's this one and Psalm 70. And the English Standard Version translator said for the memorial, translated as for the memorial offering. But I don't know what the memorial offering is. I've looked all over the sacrifices. I have no idea which ones those are, right? There are some that are, there are portions of the sacrifice that are a memorial portion. So I'm not sure exactly what that is, but for remembrance makes good sense to me. That every time this song is psalm is sung, it's a reminder of what he, condition he was in and how he and is crying out to God. And when you get to Psalm 70, it'll be the same thing. So anyways, I just want to point that out to you. If you're come across a translation, yes. Sorry. Did I say that? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fun to do, yeah, to see how they translate them. It is way different. Yeah. So for remembrance, I think is a good way to put it. But memorial offering is fine. Okay? So then you look at verse 1, our verse 1. So the psalm begins where? Where does the psalm begin? Well, besides that, that's, that's the Hebrew verse 1. Our verse 1. He's angry, right? Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So notice where it begins. It begins with the fact that he finds God, um, he finds God angry, okay, in this situation. And we'll, as we go through the psalm, you can't miss why. So notice that, uh, so here's a question. As you look at this first verse then, and as you go on in the first verse into the second and following, is David being dismissive or is he blame shifting? Is he doing any of that? Right, he's not. He, he actually goes on to say, you're right to be angry. Yes, it is obvious, yes. But it's not obvious to us. So that's why I'm bringing it up. But it's good. No, no but no, it's good. But it is. So it's, he's not being dismissive. I think that's extremely important. He's not being blame. He's not blame shifting. He's not saying... You have no right to be angry with me. You have no right to be... It's, it's somebody else's fault or, or you've got a problem. Right? There's none of that going on. He owns it. So he's not being dismissive. That's all I wanted to emphasize there. O Lord, rebuke O Yahweh, you rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down to me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of... And he goes on from there. And so... Yeah, so we just already dealt with this. So what does he do instead? He actually owns that God has a right to be angry at him. You notice the, the three phrases or three statements uh, that come up that are because of statements. Oops, what is wrong with this? Oh, operator, that's what it is. It's always good to blame the computer. Yeah, yeah, it's always good to blame the computer. Good job, CJ. So instead of blame shifting or being dismissive, and this is what Moose was pointing out, what does he do instead? Yeah, yeah. All the way through. Because of my, your, 
because of your indignation, because of my sin, because of my foolishness, verse 5, and so forth, right? So he's, he's owning up to it. And I think that's really important for us as we come in, as we think about different situations. And sometimes we sit around and go, well, I don't know why you're, you know, I don't understand the, your, the anger of God in this situation. It's not my fault, right? And so actually owning up to it, okay? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, he actually, yeah, okay. No, because he goes on in the second part of the verse, nor discipline me in your wrath. He's not saying your wrath is wrong or overreactive. It's, I deserve it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, possibly, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were pretty wily when we raised the with the boys. I had the boys at one point go out and get their own switches because they had done something. And so Caleb was Caleb was pretty good about. Is Caleb here? Hopefully not. Okay. So Caleb was pretty good about. It. He got a big stick, right? Derek thought he could get over on us, so he got one of those really flexible switches, right? I got one on Dad. This won't hurt at all. And when we got done, he goes, I wish I had known. (laughs) It was great. Yes, absolutely. All right, so watch how the effects of his own sin show up in his suffering. So look at verses 2 through 4, or 2 through 8. Your sorrow, your arrows have sunk into me. This is very descriptive. Your arrows, none of us have been shot with arrows recently, right? Right, so, but... So the description may not be as meaningful to us, but he would, David would have seen people who actually had arrows in them at some point, right? And that how the pain and the infection that comes with it and all those other things. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh. Because of your indignation, there's no health in my bones. Because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My, my wounds sink stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day long. All the day I go about mourning for my sides are filled with burning. Anybody ever had stomach problems when you were really upset or you were really worried about something, right? My sides uh, filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. So notice that, what, what are the effects then of his sin that they're showing up? Yeah, so some of this may be metaphorical, maybe just descriptive. It could be, act, you know, kind of a metaphorical description or it could be a literal description. There may be actual physical ailment going on. Ulcers, both internal and maybe external. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, before rolling. What's the other one that they use for acid reflux now? Tums, zites, yeah, yeah, all that stuff, right? Before all of that. But notice that there's a, a, the descriptions are very physical. Okay, he's actually, looks like he's actually dealing with some kind of a physical ailment 
that goes along as a result of his sin and his sinful situation. Isn't that interesting? It seems like there's a physical situation to it, okay, or an outworking there, okay? That doesn't mean that all suffering is a result of my sin, okay? You should always remember that, okay? But suffering should bring to mind sin. Suffering should um, cause us to do some reflection, not just beat ourselves up, right? Not, not like that. But also, on the other side, not to turn around and look down our noses at others who are sick and suffering and think, well, great sickness must mean, great suffering must mean great sin. You've sinned greatly somewhere. That's wrong for us to go there too. But we need to own up to the fact that sometimes sin and sickness and suffering do go together. Anybody remember 1 Corinthians 11? Communion. They're not taking communion properly. And Do you remember what Paul actually says there in 1 Corinthians 11 about that? Some are sick. Some have... Yeah, some have died. Right? We need to remember how... If we are body and soul creatures. That's how God made us. Right? So I, that means lots of good things and... and, and helpful things like you know if you feel like God has forsaken you if you come and talk to me if you think God has forsaken you one of the first things I'll do you may not hear me say it this way but this is in my head is an old AA thing called halt I'm going to ask you are you hungry are you angry are you lonely or are you tired right and that's where I'm going to go first because those are often your physical aspect is often impacts the way you perceive things right anybody ever had a sugar crash you know how God hates you when you have a sugar crash, right? That's how it feels. God has rejected me. I have been cast off, right? That's how it feels because you're down. You're physically down in the pit, right? So you need to recognize the connection, body and soul. And that's what you see going on here. All right. So we've already looked at the because of statements. Anything stick out to you with those? Verse uh, verse. Three, four, and five, uh, three, four, three, three, and five. That's it. Three, three, and five. Twice and three, and once and five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because of my foolishness, I appreciate that too. Who doesn't feel like a fool sometimes? You know, you do something and you go, "Why did I do that? That was so stupid." And it's still wrong, but it's stupid wrong, right? Yep. Oh. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we forget. We forget. Anybody ever watch Saving Private Ryan? You remember there, there was the plane crash. Um, later on, they, the, the patrol comes up on a, a, a section, an area where there's been this plane that's been down for a while and all these wounded soldiers are coming up and stuff. And there's a guy that has, uh, that's uh, got a leg wound and he's hurting. And the medic, uh, one of the guys wants to help him and the medic is over here helping somebody else. He just says, hey, smell his leg. Does it smell like cheese? Yeah, yeah, it was worse than cheese. But he's, that's what he asked him. And he says, it does. He's going to die. It's getting green. Right? I, there's nothing I can do about it right now. And so give him morphine or whatever it was. In the sword. I mean, it's just we forget, you know, those aspects. And so it's a very descriptive song. Okay? 
Okay. So as you look at and as you listen to these verses, how deep does it feel like, feel that the suffering is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is... Yeah, yeah. It's a very physical, there's a very physical aspect to it. It goes down that far, yeah. Yes! Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in fact, that's, that's kind of the language when he says, um, um, verse 4, for the, my iniquities, my, my iniquities have gone over my head that, like a heavy burden, they're too heavy for me. So it's almost like he's drowning in it. And he knows it, yeah. Or if it's not the iniquity, if it's not the sin itself, it's the consequences of the sin, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Good. Very good. Tina, are you doing this? What's up with this? Okay. Uh, so these opening verses, verses one through eight, brought Charles Spurgeon in his little, in his little, in his huge multi-volume commentary on the Psalms, brought Charles Spurgeon to write this prayer. I really thought, thought this was a touching prayer. Rebuked must be, for I am an erring child, and thou a careful father. But throw not too much anger into the tones of thy voice. Deal gently, although I have sinned grievously. The anger of others I can bear, but not thine. As thy love is most sweet to my heart, so thy displeasure is most, most cutting to my conscience. Chase me if thou wilt. It is a father's prerogative. And this is what you hear David doing here. Chase me if you will. It's a father's prerogative. And to endure it obediently is a child's duty. But, O, turn not the rod into a sword, smite not so as to kill. True, my sins might well inflame inflame thee, but let thy mercy and long-suffering quench the glowing coals of thy wrath. O, let me not be treated as an enemy or dealt with as a rebel. Bring to remembrance thy covenant, thy fatherhood, and my feebleness, and spare thy servant. What a touching prayer. You remember Habakkuk in chapter Habakkuk 3. I know everybody's read it recently, right? So after in chapter 2, he hears from God, he hears from God that the righteous will live by his faith. And it, that's a, there's a whole context for that. In the midst of, of social and uh, national and geopolitical calamity, the righteous shall live by his faith. And so then Habakkuk prays. And in Habakkuk 3 is that psalm he wrote to be used in worship that's a prayer. And towards the beginning of that he says, he tells God how right he is to be angry with his people, but then he says, in thy wrath, remember mercy. In your wrath, remember mercy. And that's kind of what David is doing here. It's almost like that. In your wrath, remember mercy. You're right to be this way, but do remember mercy. Right? And I think that Spurgeon gets that point. Mm, yeah. So yes, I know I did it. So the head knowledge, so 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, Psalm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And if I and and Luther, I'll bring up a quote from Luther later. He'll say that's exactly what the Psalm helps us to do: is to realize how bad our sins really are, because we easily forget. We dismiss. We're dismissive. Okay. So yes. So let me just take a little side note here, just very quickly. A little deeper into this, the whole thought of sin and suffering for a moment, okay? And so if Job and John 9, 1 through 7, anybody remember what happened in John 9, 1 through 7? A blind, a young, a blind man is there. Yes, the disciples ask, who sinned? This man or his parents, right? So they immediately go to great suffering must mean there was great sin. Right? And, they, and Jesus says, what? Neither. This was for the glory of God. Well, that, that'll flip some switches in your head, right? And so if Job and John 9 teach us anything, they teach us that my suffering is not automatically the result of my sin. Great suffering does not essentially mean great sin. I just have to say that because you're going to run across Christians. First off, you've got to deal with your own heart because sometimes you feel that way. But you're going to run across Christians who actually have been taught great suffering means great sin. Okay? And so they go there immediately. And for your own sanity, and maybe for a little help for them, maybe you can pull this psalm up and remember, no, that's not the case, you know, as you think about Job and as you think about John and so forth. You've got to say that great suffering does not automatically mean that there's been great sin. Okay? And yet, all suffering really is a result of sin. I mean, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, For by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all sinned. Well, death is not a standalone thing. With death usually comes dying, right? And all kinds of suffering and ailments. Anybody sat around and helped someone who was dying? You know what I'm talking about, right? And so, you can honestly say... Uh, that suffering is the result of sin. When I do funerals, I always bring this up and point out, you know, I don't know, you know, your Uncle Joe's here in the grave and what brought him to the grave? Well, sin. And everybody goes, oh! And I go, well, I'm not talking about necessarily his personal sin. I don't know that. But I can say this, and I'll quote this verse, and we're all going to be here because of this. Right? And so we've got to say that too. But also, for us, something new has happened for those who are, who are Christ's that makes much of our suffering no longer part of death and dying, or part of, by that I mean specifically judgment, but now makes it part of the family likeness. So Romans chapter 8, let's go there very quickly. Hold Psalm 38. I just felt like I needed to take a little excursion here on this. So in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, and we could go further with this. Paul says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and have children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And we always stop there. But what's the next line say? Provided we suffer with Him. 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay? And then Paul goes on with that and talks about, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that has been revealed to us. And then he just goes on, even all creation is suffering because of the fall, and yet the creation will enter into our redemption. When we're raised from the dead, all creation will enter into that. And he just keeps going on, and finally he comes to the end of Romans chapter 8, the passage that everybody loves to talk about, and yet it still is covered with suffering. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Suffering. As it is written, for your sake, we, bo- we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep for- to be slaughtered. No, I tell you, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The point is, is that we still will suffer, but now the meaning of suffering has changed. If you're out of Christ, suffering is all about damnation. If you're in Christ, suffering is family likeness. Who do you know in the Trinity who suffered? Our Lord Jesus, right? And that's Paul's point in Romans 8, okay, a part of his point. All right, so I just wanted to go down that road briefly before we move on. Any questions before we move on? Yeah. Yeah, we talked about that at the beginning, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so this is an excursion. I've taken off on a, on a rabbit trail for a moment, dealing with the subject of great suffering does not mean great sin, okay? And so I was going down that road. In case it's not clear for anyone, that's where I was going. So I'm not saying that about David in Psalm 38. I'm saying that because we have to deal with that subject while we talk about this. Because this one, there's a very clear connection between his sin and his suffering. I'm going to make it pointed out even more here in a minute, okay? That's why I went down that road. Does that help? No, it's okay. But it, does that help? Okay, good. All right. Anybody else? Is there anything I can confuse you on? I'm really good at that. Oh, yeah. And black, making up in the sufferings of Christ. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so now we're going to move on to verses 9 through 14. Are we ready? Everybody ready to move on? Okay. Ah. Tina, you're at it again. Okay. Sorry. So as deeply and physically painful as verses 1 through 8 are, or were, starting here at verse 9, the psalmist goes deeper, and here he drills down into sadness. Okay? So just look at verses 9 through 14. And you can see the different aspects of sadness here. Where does he go? Where does the result, at least for some of it, where does the result of this sin show up in other places besides the physical? Verses 1 through 8 is really more physical. Starting at verse 9, it moves other places. Where else does it go? 
Yeah, our relationships, right? Even his kinfolk have forsaken him. What else? Great. You keep thinking that. We're going to move on. Yes. His, his emotions. Ah, what happened? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's everything physical and even beyond that. The light of my eyes. So, so remember Jonathan, so Saul, Saul makes a vow. Nobody can eat anything until we conquer the Philistines. And Jonathan didn't hear that. And so as they're all going into combat, everybody's starving. And Jonathan happens to see some honey. And he sticks his staff in there. And I wouldn't have done that. But he sticks his staff in there, pulls the honey out, and licks the honey off. And it says it brightened his eyes. Right, so he became energetic, and you know, you know, when you're hungry, and you go from being hungry to no longer, no longer hungry. Yeah, right, right, right. And so here, it's like the life has gone out of him. Okay, the light of my eyes has gone out. It's just a dullness here. Okay, it's another description for that. Okay, so as you look at that, starting at verse uh, verse nine, yeah, we've talked about relational. Um, you'll notice verse ten. Uh, what, what Berta was talking about, so my heart throbs, my strength fails me, the light of my eyes, it's gone from me. My, so it seems like there's that emotional or psychological impact of his sin that's happened there. There's a relational impact that's gone on, and then comes something of an adversarial impact, which we'll talk about in a minute. So notice that when you get to verse 9, Notice that God's unfettered knowledge is drawn up. And what do you notice about verse 9? O Lord, all my longings before you, my sighing is not hidden from you. What is, as you think about that verse, what's going on there? Yeah. And who's he longing for? Yeah. He's longing for the Lord. My longing is before you, right? That's part of the other aspect of the result of the sin is his longing is unfulfilled at this point, right? He really wants to be close to God and walk and, and, and realizes what his sin has done, for example. Sure. Yeah. 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 Yes. Right, and that's the interesting thing is here comes omniscience, God's all-knowingness, and he, dre- he brings it up. You, and notice how he, it's comforting, right? Because God's omniscience is not always comforting. When you're trying to hide something from Him, that's a bothersome reminder. God knows all things. I'm not hiding anything from Him, right? And so that becomes a problem. That hurts sometimes. But then on the other side, when you're going through the thick, thick of it, remembering the omniscience of God is all-knowingness, is comforting, Okay? All my longing is before you. Yeah. No, it's just the fact that it's, it goes with the second part of the verse. My sighing is not hidden from you. You know my longings. You know, even though it's unfulfilled, you know what I really long for. And this is why I think it's 
probably very emphatically his longing for the Lord. And we'll see that again when we get later. I mean, why else is he in the midst of this crawling out to the Lord the whole time? Because his longing is really for the Lord. What hurts him the most is the fact that he feels like that God is disciplining him at a distance or something in his anger and rebuke. And um, he just feels deserted. And then he goes immediately, not only to his own emotional issues, but then he goes to family desertion. His friends and family have avoided him. So I think it's exactly that. It's a very, uh, seems to me a very visceral sense of you really do know that I long for you and this hurts so bad because I feel like you're so far away. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably a lot it's probably all that and more. And his work wounds Steve. I mean Tina, she avoided Steve because no, no, right? Right, right. But but I think that the point is is the fact that the result of his sin for whatever reason, because he calls it a plague, right? So there's the physical aspect, and his family and his friends, all my nearest kin, stand far off. They're not stand, they're not coming in to help. They're 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 not doing anything. They're just standing over there. So there's no they don't want to be around him. There's no communion. Yeah, there's no fellowship. And what do you need and sometimes we don't like this when we're going through dark times, but what do we need most in the midst of dark times? You know, we often need a, uh, a soulmate, somebody to come up next to us and just put their arm around us and simply just walk with us. Not try to fix us, but walk with us through it, right? And he didn't have that. And the, the only companionship he... Huh? It could be. Some people do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Has anybody ever been with someone when they had a total emotional breakdown? I mean, right in public, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a truly a psychological issue. Yeah, yeah. And it's just a breakdown, and you can watch people step back immediately and start avoiding them, right? It takes a lot of know-how and compassion to step in and try to be a companion in that, even though they may not want you to be. But it's funny to just walk, watch people, they just start stepping back. Or like a, a car accident. Sometimes, you know, the mooses of the world, we, would all, we all run to the car accident and want to go see if we can go get first aid while everybody else is standing on the side of the road going, Aah! right? And so it's the same kind of thing. Here's, I think that's the alienation is the fact that people see it and they're backing out. Right, right, right. Yeah. 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 Right. Sure. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's that part too. So notice how, we've already kind of dealt with this, notice how David's sadness is emotional or psychological, verse 10, and it's social and relational. But we've kind of hammered that already. But then, 
It gets worse because it becomes adversarial. And that's when you get to verse 12. Those who seek my life. So not only has he already got this hot mess that he's in, this problem that he's in, and he's not disowning the fact that he's the problem or he, his, what he did was the problem, but now all of a sudden, on top of all the physical, emotional, and, and relational, then comes the adversarial. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery, treachery all day long. It's just, it's, just, it's just being piled on. right? It's just one thing after the other being piled on. Any questions or anything before we move on? So two pictures to think about here. First off, uh, first, all of this sadness is spawned by his sin. He said so back in 3 and his foolishness in verse 5 the con- and the consequences of his sin. So there's a physical affliction, there's emotional, uh, he's emotionally struck, he's relationally avoided, and he's adversarially attacked. And so his response looks like someone who's just run out of gas. He's got no fight left. And that's when you get to verse 13. I'm like a deaf man I do not hear. I'm like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. It's almost like he's just, he's just shut down okay, at this point. And yet, oddly enough, there is a shadowy feel of our Lord Jesus here. In the midst of all of this, especially with the adversarial aspect and bearing with the consequences of sin that affect the body and all those things, and then the quietness, just not responding back. Okay, So go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter's talking to Christian servants who are being mistreated by their masters. That starts in verse 18, and they're to respond a certain way. And then he goes on to say this, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And the same thing comes up in Hebrews, talking about how as Christ dealt with the adversaries, he did not respond in kind, but was like a sheep being led to the slaughter. Right? And so there's, a, there's, a, there's a shadow, if you want to call it that, a, a sense of our Lord Jesus in this psalm. He's not the one who did the sinning, but he experienced all of this as he bore our sin. Can you think about the physical? Right? Can you think about, yeah, you so said the cross is very easy, the flogging. Anybody think about the psychological, the emotional? How about in the garden where it says he was sad unto death? And it's the, the language there in the Greek is very clear. He was having uh, great emotional distress. The darkest kind of darkness you can get into. Okay? And then did his friends hang around? What did his friends do? They avoided him. Right? They backed out. What about his adversaries? 
Were they heaping it on? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? There's this shadow of Jesus behind the psalm. He didn't sin, but as He bore our sin, He truly enters into all the things, the descriptions in this psalm. Okay? And so this is uh, Mark, I always butcher his last name, Rugop, I think it is. But it's that book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Some of you have bought that book, and I, and I would highly recommend it. He says this, There will be times when we reap what we've sown. When sin has proven costly, we can turn to laments like Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 130, 143, which express deep regret. Lament gives us a language for godly sorrow and a reason to hope again. What a great statement. It gives us, uh, uh, it gives us language for godly sorrow and a reason to hope again. There's a second way that lament as confession can can be helpful. Lament reminds us that even the small expressions of our wayward hearts, this is what Steve was talking about a minute ago, the small expressions of our wayward hearts, those regular and respectable sins, are serious. Rather than limiting the penitential psalms to major moral failure, we can use the weight of lament to lead us to sensitivity to sin we might be inclined to ignore or dismiss. That should be an or. Or dismiss. I think that's very helpful. It's what Steve was asking, talking about earlier. Actually going through and using the Psalms, even if you don't feel like Psalm 38 is your Psalm for the day, right? Like you just don't feel that way. You're happy, clappy that day. You're like Tigger, woohoo, right? Bouncing around on your tail. Boing, 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 boing. And then you get to Psalm 38 and it reminds us again, oh, the death of my sin. This is what even... The, that sin that I thought was nothing really is like, right? Things like that, okay? I think that's really helpful. We're getting ready to move on. Any questions or anything? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. Good. All right, so the last few verses, 15 through 22, sadness, suffering, and sin. So still, still sin is in here, and still suffering is in here, and still sadness is here. Right? As you look at 15 through 22, it's not gone. In fact, interesting enough, in this psalm, there's really no resolve a resolve at the end right there's no answer or remedy at the end it's one of those psalms like psalm psalm 88 is probably the the clearest case where that happens where there's just no resolution in that psalm and sometimes that's okay just to come to confess and not have a resolution because what lee just said it's really in his hands right um and yet part of the agony is all the longing. We already mentioned it in verse 9. Look at the longing again in verse 15. But for you, O Yahweh, do I wait. This is why I'm pretty certain in verse 9, it really, he really is yearning for God. And he feels utterly separated 
For you, O Yahweh, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. There's his hope. Okay? He's confident of that, but that's that longing. Okay? It's a believer's longing. It's actually a lover's longing. I'm confident. It's, I'm waiting for you. I long to hear you answer. I long for you. Okay? One of these days, I will figure this out with the manual here. No. But notice that the adversaries are still making it hard. As you look at verses 16 through 20, the adversaries are still making it hard. Uh, So David prays, don't let them rejoice over me, those who boast against me when my foot slips. Interesting, the foot slip. You go back to chapter 37, Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24. David wrote this as well. The steps of a man are established by Yahweh. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. For the Lord holds the uh, for Yahweh upholds His hand. It's that slippage. They rejoice when I slip, and yet I know that you're the one who holds me in your hand, and you're the one who can restore. Right? But David is still a believer, nonetheless. David is still a lover, regardless. And so you get to verses twenty-one through twenty-two. It's the closing cry of one who trusts that in the wrath, God remembers the mercy. Do not forsake me, O Yahweh. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. He, He can say that because he knows that God, even though he doesn't feel like God is close and hears him, he knows that God hears him and he knows what God is really like. That this is a God who can remember mercy in the face of wrath. Okay? So here's what Luther said. So he didn't say what I told you he was going to say. That was the other guy that said it. But Luther said this. Likewise, we too should pray and not despair in any anxiety, even though we are sinners and feel sharply the burden and assault of our sin. So any questions or anything on verses uh, 18 to 22? 15 to 22? Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I love the Psalms because it's just how genuine it really is. It's not as quite as, I'm sorry if I say this, it's not quite as genuine as some of our Christian books in the Christian bookstore, you know, that want you to have a happy, clappy life. It's like that's not the reality, right, for various reasons, right? Good. Anybody else? How's that? Yes. Yes. It is ending on a high note. There's just no resolution. It's just ending with his hope. The hope and, uh, and the one in whom he has hope. Right? And that's where we should go, even though we don't see an answer. We should land there. So that's right. Yeah, that's good.
Yes, yes, very good. So God will forget, can, does forgive his people, doesn't mean he removes the consequences, right? And we need to remember that as well because, I mean, I've seen people that have, but I ask God to forgive me. Why am I still, because that's a consequence of the sin, right? And, and we've got, that's part of maturity is finally growing up enough to say, Oh yeah, there are consequences of my sin. He never promised he'd take those away, but he did say he would take the sin away. He would forgive me the sin. And I can trust that. I mean, David is a great is a horrible example. I almost said great example. Right? He commits sin with Bathsheba. He's repentant. And yet there are consequences. The reign is in his whole kingdom is in turmoil for years afterwards. There are consequences to this. And then the child dies that was conceived, right? There are all these consequences to his sin. So just recognizing that it's really important for us. Yes? Yeah, I don't mean we... Right. Yeah, we're not saying that. Yeah. Yeah. It could have. What's Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You are the man. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 In that sense, he's a good example, but there's all these consequences. That's the point is, is there's these consequences. And just recognizing that um, is really helpful for us to remember. Uh, he never promised to take away the consequences, per se. Okay? All right, so... Uh, Patrick Henry Reardon in his, uh, in his book Christ in the Psalms, the proper response to sin and suffering, as you think about Psalm 38, it's confession of sins, the sustained cultivation of repentance. That's what you have going on in the psalm. Ah, goodness gracious. So how might working at praying this psalm on beha- behalf of others play out? Could you see using the psalm on behalf of others? How might it play out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Recognizing it and actually interceding on their behalf and using the psalm. Yeah, they would have hope. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's a good point too, yeah. Don't, I, yeah, so don't try to fix them. Walk with them, you know. If you want to fix them, send them to hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, growing in empathy. As you use this psalm, actually gaining some empathy. I'm not going to be, Lord, help me not to be like his family and friends that avoided him. Right? Help me to stand close to him as you, as you work that psalm. So, if anyone works through the Psalms day by day, so that, that's a tradition within the Christian church, actually using the Psalms every day and working through them, okay? It goes east and west, so the Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, Anglicans, Protestants of various kinds have used the Psalms every day. I highly recommend it. It's one of the things that I've done for years. But if anyone here has worked through the Psalms day by day, how has coming across Psalm 38 been good for you? I know, if you don't answer, it doesn't mean you don't use the Psalms regularly, okay? But 
if anybody has, I just thought this would be pretty cool if you've actually worked through it or if you've come through Psalm 38 before, what was the benefit? Mm-hmm. Remember the earlier quote at the very beginning, the psalmist disciplines us or helps to discipline our emotions, right? We can pull them in. And here you have another example of that. All right, well, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll, uh, we'll do Psalm 39 next week. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the psalms. Thank you for the emotion, sometimes raw emotion that's here and how it was all wrapped up and focused upon you and and was filled with faith, even in the midst of very dark times. We thank you, Lord, that this was written for us. It was, it was written for us to use. It was written for us as a training manual. It was written to help discipline our emotions. It was written so that we could draw close to you in the ups and downs of life, in the high points and in the very dark low points, Lord. Thank you so much for the Psalms. Be with us now as we leave here and as we go into the great assembly. Help us to remember and recall who you are and um, what you've done and are doing and will do for your people. In Jesus' name, amen.